0: This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 go, go, go. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: Down. We're moving too fast. And then this master brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by hopsteiner a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality sustainability and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop related tools you need to craft your next great beer for more information visit hopsteiner.com additional support provided by get to know proximity malt
2: And even bigger headache for, for brewers who, it's one thing to have the beer chemistry change. it's another thing to have the beer just slow down on the brewery and spend another week uh, in the cellar.
0: This week on the show, Tom Shellhammer joins us for a live recording during the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver. We talk about the latest findings regarding varietal differences in hop creep, and Jeff Claussen joins us to talk about the new brewery at OSU. Tom, you joined us for episode 98, Dry Hop Creep. This time we're here to catch up on what you've learned since. Specifically, you've been
2: studying hop creep across different varieties. Yeah, exactly. So when, when this first arose, we talked about it in that last podcast, this, this collaboration we had, or joint investigation I should say, we had with, uh, with Allagash and realizing that there is a quite a substantial amount of residual enzyme activity in hops and we were looking at cascade hops and their ability to reduce and break down non-fermentable dextrins into something fermentable there was a bunch of obvious questions came up uh, particularly talking with different brewers which is why does this not always happen with every beer and why does it happen differently with different uh work systems um Could there possibly be a varietal effect? That was one of the first things that came up uh, in talking with breweries who was saying, hey, I find this in one type of IPA, but not another type of IPA. I mean, still to this day, when I talk to brewers, not every brewer experiences this phenomenon. And those that do experience it in varying different degrees. Some have, have, like, big headaches with it, that their beers dry out. They're like making brewed IPAs without even trying. And then others kind of look at me and say, I don't see this at all. So, so anyway, that, that's sort of the, the launch and off point, which is, does variety matter? And we made a pitch to the BA uh, for some funds, and they funded this project a year and a half ago. And what well, we looked at, 30 different hop varieties, to see is there a varietal difference in the residual enzymatic activity. And sort of the progression of the of the study is that we worked with the Allagash guys, basically dry-hopping, Coors Banquet Beer, and re- seeing that there was an effect, and we could see this using just the alkalizer. We could follow alcohols, and we could follow RE. We looked for a different approach for measuring enzyme activity. We used some enzyme kits. Those worked pretty well, but they, they got a little bit expensive, and, and they were very specific, almost too specific. So, And you had to uh, adapt those from some malt enzyme kits. Yeah, recall, we are using right? basically off-the-shelf malt enzyme kits. But malt enzyme is loaded with enzyme, and hops are not. So we had to do some modifications so that we could you know, have enough sensitivity to see the impact on the, on the hops. Can you, um, can you remind us which enzymes are relevant here? Yeah, good point. So <laughs> there's two sets of enzymes, if you think about them in terms of general classes. One set of enzymes are the enzymes that you'd find in malt. These are enzymes that would break down linear portions of starch, so alpha and beta amylase, and the part that is probably the most important in this story is the other set of enzymes, those that can deal with branched dextrins. And malt has a little bit of this, but, but a very low amount. And during the mashing process, the temperature is high enough that these get inactivated, and the mashing time is short enough that you don't really see an effective de-branching activity of the, of the malt-based enzymes. And that results in wort that has a bunch of residual extract, a bunch of residual non-fermentables. It turns out that hops have a set of enzymes that can break these branch dextrins, and it's a very small amount, and it's a very low activity, but given that brewers use lots of hops when they dry hop, and there's a fairly long residence time, you can actually see the effect of this. And I should also point out that we're not really certain that these enzymes are coming from the hops themselves. People have asked me, could these be from microbiota that are on the hops themselves, and yeah, it's entirely possible. And that's another thing to look at is, are there either fungi or bacteria present on hops that you would find in the field that could have the same effect? And we're not sure. After that Allagash experiment that we,
0: we talked about and that you just mentioned, um, I, I believe you, you next you looked at for the enzyme activity in hop extract, is that correct?
2: Yeah, so the, the approach was to, to do an aqueous extract of hops and and look at the enzyme activity in those as opposed to uh, in beer. And um, that worked okay. And, and we actually worked with like a soluble starch substrate. But we found that the results were not quite the same as with beer. And so our, we turned our attention to an assay in which we use beer. And we dry hop the beer. We add... Uh, an antimicrobial to prevent any sort of microbial growth so that we're not actually following re-fermentation, we're just following a change in the carbohydrate profile of the wort using liquid chromatography. So in short, the wort doesn't have any simple sugars, it's got dextrins, not the wort, but the beer does. And after this dry hopping process on the bench, we can see the conversion of dextrins into simple sugars and we just calculate the rate and amount of those.
0: So, and so that's you're talking about that was sort of the, the third angle that you took after yeah. you looked at the, the extracts, right? Yeah,
2: it's so to, to track sugars. Uh, the, the first approach, like with the Alagash guys, is you've got yeast and hops and beer, and so any sort of fermentable sugars that were being produced by the action of the enzymes in the hops would be converted by the yeast into alcohol. And so what you would see is a reduction in residual extract and an increase in, in, in alcohol
0: Okay. And, and what you're saying is you did you, you did definitely see uh, 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 those fermentable sugars increase you after bet. you did that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So
2: the, the, this sort of second or third approach is to eliminate the yeast part of that. So we don't add any yeast in these bench scale dry hop processes. And in fact, we add an antimicrobial to make sure that we don't infect the system and, and see yeast um, consuming the sugars because we don't want the sugars to disappear. We actually want to be able to measure them. And we can measure them using liquid chromatography.
0: Okay, and then next, you wanted to take a closer look uh, at dextrins to verify that they were indeed the, the source of the fermentable sugars produced. Tell us how you went about that and, and what you found.
2: Yeah, so th- this approach that we use using liquid chromatography allows us to look at more than just the simple sugars. We can look at um, the the smaller dextrins. So, if, and we're going to call it like either by the length of polymerization, like G. 1 would be glucose, G2 would be maltose, G3, maltotriose, G4, maltotetrose, etc. And so this liquid chromatography technique using a lycosaccharide column allows us to differentiate dextrins up to about G10. And we don't know the branching degree on them, but we can at least characterize them as in gross, like, hunks. So here is a hunk of DP4, could be linear or branched. DP5 or G5 linear branched. And we can see those as separate peaks on a chromatogram. And what we essentially do over the course of a a time scale of following dry hopping is see the degradation of these dextrins, G4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and the increase in the simple fermentable sugars, G1, 2, and 3. All right, that's pretty
0: cool. So after that, you then set up um, an experiment to profile carbohydrates
2: in dry hopped beer. Talk about that. In, in the development of this assay, one of the questions we had was, if we're going to use beer instead of like a, a maltodextrin substrate, what beer would we use? And we rather than doing an exhaustive profile, we looked at a number of different beers that might be useful. Like one of them was this Coors Banquet beer that we had used with the original Allagash experiment. And as you might not be surprised to know is like there's a pretty broad range in the dextrin profile of different beers and like an, a classic example of this would be a brute IPA to which a brewer has added a whole bunch of enzymes to really drive down the dextrin content versus a really low fermentable high extract um, you know double IPA and what we found in looking at a range of different beers is that some beers still had fermentable sugars, and those beers were excluded as a potential candidate because we're actually trying to track the production of simple sugars and we don't want to have the interference of a background level of simple sugars. And then we also found that beers had different degrees of residual extract or dextrins. So of this very cursory examination of a handful of beers, we just went after the beer that had no simple sugars and the highest amount of dextrins left behind, and so it was this, this big IPA.
0: And you found that the most dramatic changes occurred pretty quickly, I think, in that first day.
2: Yeah, that's really it's kind of a surprising thing that we found, and, and we saw this also with that experiment with the Coors Banquet Bureau, with Allagash, is that within the first two days of dry hopping, there was a dramatic reduction in, in residual extract and a big bump in, in alcohol, And then after that, there was a continued reduction, but it was like at a different rate. It was almost like a different set of enzymes or a different substrate. And that was actually fortuitous because we didn't want to run these assays over two weeks. So we found that we could get a, a pretty big signal in the first day and to make life easy, we just focused on the simple sugars and we focused on the change that occurred in the first day. Great, now getting to the main question,
0: uh, we asked at the beginning, how, how much does hop creep vary by cultivar? You studied 30 different varieties. There's a lot of different hops out there these days. Uh, how did
2: you decide which ones to include in this study? So we, we, there was a number of different factors. One was, um, what are hops that brewers use for dry hopping? You definitely want to have those in the mix. Um, but as a counterpoint, what are hops that brewers don't use for dry hopping? Because we want to see, you know, is why not? Why not, yeah. exactly. Um North American hops versus European hops versus southern hemisphere hops uh, the, the, the European hops where there is almost like a control right because people don 't dry hop with pearly um, but everybody 's dry hopping with Amarillo so a little bit of it was trying to create uh, a decent spread of the map of potential cultivars without really knowing what we 're going to look at but not trying to be exhaustive and look at 200 different hop varieties
0: yeah okay well give us a lowdown on the overall experimental design for for this one
2: right so this this dry hop method that we or this enzyme characterization method relied on benchtop dry hopping is what we used uh we used that the beer that had the high dections this happened to be in ninkasi's total dom and uh that was convenient because they're just down the street they'd send us up kegs of this beer and away we go uh, so we do these small-scale dry hoppings in, in replicate on the bench and monitor them for a few days and take samples or run them on the LC and track the production of simple sugars. And so the, sort of the index we used was the production of glucose, maltose, and maltotriose as a measure of how much enzyme performance. So if we see more production of these simple sugars... That's a direct measurement of the enzyme power of the of the hops. Hence, those hops are more enzymatically active, which, from a brewer takeaway, would mean that they would result in a greater reduction in, in uh, metal, I mean, a greater reduction in dextrins, and also the potential. Imagine if this is happening post-packaging, the greater production of sugars, and hence the greater potential for re-fermentation. Coming up. You know, disease pressure could have an impact on how these plants express these enzymes. Um, Definitely post-harvest processing we know has an effect.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
1: Additional support provided by Whitcomb-Sylinski McAuliffe PC serves all brewers in registering and protecting trademarks, navigating the label approval process, and assisting with OSHA inspections and safety compliance. Please go to WSMLawPC.com for more information.
0: Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Pittsburgh meets April 15th. The Brewery Packaging and Technology Course starts in Madison April 21st. District St. Louis meets April 25th at Second Shift Brewery. The 58th Annual District Caribbean Convention joins forces with District Southeast and Miami May 2nd through the 5th. This is going to be a big meeting with lots of great speakers, including folks who've been on this podcast. Joe Hertrick, Andrew Fradiani, John Mallett, Roy Johnson, Dr. John Paul May, Andy Tavikram, and more. District Philly also meets May 3rd at two SP Brewing. If you're barrel aging, don't miss the May 9th webinar screening for Lactobacillus Acetotolerans in a brewery setting. District St. Paul Minneapolis meets May 16th at the Star Keller in New Ulm. District St. Louis is at Old Bakery Brewery May 16th. And District Northern Illinois meets at Half Acre Beer May 31st. It's time to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. Check out the full calendar of events at mba.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Okay, now these 30 different varieties ended up in uh, four classes. Talk about how you got there.
2: Yeah, so we can use some statistical techniques to look at the amount of covariation in the production of these simple sugars. You, you can imagine that, We and what, what we found is like there was one class of, of hops. When I talk about a class, we're talking about like a statistical grouping, right? There's, there's no pedigree class. There's no geographical class. It's just enzyme performance class and and the fact that it's not a simple like one dextrin goes to glucose it's like dextrins can be broken down into smaller dextrins and those dextrins can be broken down into sugars in different manners depending upon the type of enzymes that are there it results in a display of the different simple sugar productions being non-uniform so one class of 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 hops um tended to produce more fructose and glucose. Uh, another class of hops tended to produce more maltose. Uh, and another class of hops, you know, they just did really neither. They, they There was a, an increase, but not as dramatic. And so we got four statistical classes that we could characterize as being high enzyme activity. That means they produce a lot of fermentable maltose. Low, meaning that they don't produce, they produce sugars, but they Produce the lowest amount of sugars of the class, and then this kind of group in between that were just sort of medium, and that, that sort of validates or whatever proves the hypothesis that variety matters. And it's unfortunately it's not as clean as that, but we could say that of the thirty varieties, we could group these into different classes based upon enzyme performance. What we're left though is. Is that really like a varietal difference? Yeah.
0: Or you, is it something else? You also you saw some pretty big differences um, within the same cultivar over different crop years, right? Yeah.
2: So we, th- just kind of by, not by design, um, a little bit by fluke, we included two different samples of an Amarillo variety, one from one crop year and one from another crop year. And these two of the same varieties ended up in two different classes of hops, one in the high um, enzyme and one in the low. Which is kind of like, uh, it kind of makes you scratch your head. Uh, but then when you kind of circle back to it, it's kind of like, well, okay, this this, I think it still points to the fact that there are varietal differences, but it also points to the fact that there are probably other things going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, as, as you pointed out, I think in the last episode, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to tease out varietal differences versus agronomic versus what happens on the kiln, you know, on the, on the farm or even, yep, even exactly. processing. So some um, hot
2: maturity could have an impact. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, disease pressure could have an impact on how these plants express these enzymes. Um, definitely post-harvest processing we know has an effect. We've done, on a separate study, we've been doing some hop kilning research, looking at how hop temperature, excuse me, how kilning temperature influences hop quality. And
0: that's the stuff with the hop quality group, right? Yep. Actually,
2: yep. uh, no, Hop Research Council. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and that may be something, food for another podcast. Yeah, sure. But anyway, in that, in that study where we're actually playing with temperature, we see that temperature impacts enzyme uh, activity. Which makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The higher kiln temperature hops have lower enzyme activity. So what we're seeing in those two Amarillo samples could be farm effect, kilning effect. Bed depth. Bed depth effect. <laughs> yeah. Storage effect. Uh, who knows? Um, so it's you know it's not as clean as... Here's a set of hops that I can guarantee are low-enzyme producers versus these that are always going to give you a high-enzyme producer. We need to actually come around and do that a few more times with, like, the same variety on different farms and different... Um
0: so what's the plan for that? I mean, because you now that you've sort of made a dent in this, you know, saying that, that, that you know, there's clearly a, a varietal component to it, but you, you want to learn more about yeah. these other influencing factors, like, what? where do you go from there?
2: Well, yeah, that just... I mean, this is kind of the cool thing about science um, is that you answer one question and you open up a whole bunch of new questions, yeah. which is really cool from a scientific perspective. And from, I a, think, jo-
0: and from a job security perspective. And from job too. security.
2: But brewers don't want me to ask more questions. They're like, solve the problem, yeah. right? <laughs> like, how can we stop yeah. the hop creep? Right. Um, I can tell you really quickly, you can solve it with pasteurization, but that's, that, that, that runs into like a philosophical dilemma for brewers that don't want to pasteurize. But... Um, and there may be other ways to, to try to solve this problem, but there's obvious questions like, uh, like, we're, like we're, as we're wading into the kilning effect, could, can we manipulate this on the kiln? Uh, can, to what degree does harvest maturity have an effect? And really, does, does hop cultivar impact this like consistently, regardless of where you find those cultivars? So those are the questions I want to ask. Uh, i just need some money to help you know study these right because yeah. i, I, I got to hire students and we got consumables and we got to go on the farm and get samples and and the, the farmers are, are very gracious in providing time on their kilns and providing samples but I still need money to to get the work done so Fair if enough. you have any ideas there it would be great
0: all right well hopefully there's some folks listening to this that uh you know have a have a financial interest in, in, in answering some of these questions
2: you bet We've got two publications out on this. One in the Journal of Chem, One in the Journal of ASBC. The, you search for Kaylin Kirkpatrick and Shellhammer. Kaylin Kirkpatrick is a graduate student who worked on this project. Uh, she's graduated from OSU. She now works at Cornell University. She's a brewing extension associate doing teaching and research on this topic. She actually has a a webinar on this coming up in a week or two. Um, so there's publications out there on this. Oh, that's, we've got. that's through ASBC, right? The webinar? Yep, yeah. exactly. I guess, you know, another thing maybe we could talk about just briefly is that this issue of hop creep is vexing and troublesome for brewers who are trying to get beer through the brewery at a, on a regular schedule and and with a consistent um, quality, right? So a, the same degree of fermentability. But what I hear from many brewers is, is that is an even greater headache is a diacetyl spike that comes from this dry hop creep, and that's another area that we're digging into. Is why does that occur? Is it is it simply because of the re-fermentation, or is there something else going on? And and I think that's an even bigger headache for for brewers. Who it's one thing to have the beer chemistry change; it's another thing to have the beer just slow down in the brewery and spend another week uh, in the cellar. Yeah. Some.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. And uh, one great way to. Uh, build some insurance into your process with that is to add some um, ALDC to your to your fermentation. Exactly, too,
2: so. yep. A little bit of enzyme help from a different source uh, can mitigate that, uh, that, that diacetyl spike.
0: While I had a chance to chat with Tom at CBC, Jeff Clawson also joined us to talk about some big brewery upgrades at OSU.
3: Yeah, so we're um, just finishing up uh, expansion of the research brewery. So we've got a fully automated two-and-a-half hectoliter, uh, five-vessel system that we put together January 2018. Uh, Since then, we've been running, what, 85 brews through. And how much of an upgrade
0: was that? What were you you coming from? What was the previous setup?
3: Yeah, our previous setup was a two-barrel brew house. It was really a pub brewery. We had a... uh, mash cooker, combination mash lauder ton and a a kettle, and not a lot of sophistication there. We had flow meter and some temperature control, but for the most part, everybody was moving valves and grinding their own grain and tossing it in, using a paddle to mix it together. So now, fully automated system, uh, computer operated. Um, We sit down and put it together. Yeah, it it gives students
2: a a new, entirely different learning opportunity because the students are going to see the kind of automation and the the human-computer interface that you would find in a modern brewery. So that thing is is like a a, a giant step up in terms of our teaching capabilities. There's also a big step up in terms of safety, the the fact that the brewery is going to clean itself in a secure manner. The risk of having like a, a hot caustic blowout is way reduced. So that's a, another positive thing. And then just the, the automation lens, a uh, level of repeatability that we wouldn't have seen in, in the old brewery. So we still keep the old brewery. I like to say it's kind of like the, the 1996 Toyota Camry that we don't mind giving <laughs> the keys to anybody. And now we've got a 2017 Audi sitting right. in the parking lot that after they learn to drive on the Camry, then we turn the keys over.
3: Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I think it just elevates our capabilities and what we're able to do as far as research and teaching and and project work with industry.
2: Yeah, and it's really satisfying. Our program's been around since 96 and we've been working off of equipment that was donated to us back then uh, at a time when the industry was in a very different spot than it is now. Uh, the, the entire industry is more sophisticated uh, in terms of its understanding of beer uh, and the equipment that's required to produce high-quality beer. So it's very satisfying to see this evolution in our program that matches the, the technical expertise of what we do from a scientific level. That was Tom Shellhammer and Jeff
0: Claussen here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Do you have a question about hop creep? Post your question to Ask the Brewmasters, the industry's best technical forum, at community.mbaa.com. Go, 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 go. Did you know that Master Brewers now has a mobile app? TQ articles, podcasts, webinars, Ask the Brewmasters, and more, all in the same place. Search Master Brewers in the App Store to download it now.
3: Come down and move.